Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Dear Students. My name is Anna Bruns and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Ellen Atlas. Good morning, Ellen. It's good to have you here. Good morning, Anna. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, join this podcast and I'm looking forward to sharing my knowledge with everybody today. And today we are going to talk about class two solutions. But before we start, Ellen, could you please tell us a little bit more about your dental office in Philadelphia? Sure, thank you. Well, I've been uh, practicing dentist for over 30 years now. Uh, I practice in Philadelphia. I, I do a very uh, highly specialized uh, service-oriented practice, uh, really doing anything from a simple filling to a full mouth reconstruction. I don't do any surgical technique or surgical procedures. I don't do endodontics. So I work in a sort of a multidisciplinary approach, working with the best specialists in Philadelphia, and there are many great specialists here, uh, each doing our part to fulfill the uh, requiem of doing great dentistry for our patients. So basically, I'm in my practice three and a half days a week, I practice a full day at Penn, University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine, where I am now. Uh, I've held various positions over the past 24 years. I've been teaching there uh, from interim chairman to director of comprehensive care clinics to director of implant dentistry. Uh, and as I was a group leader also for 18 years overseeing uh, junior and senior students uh, for their final two years of school. But now I put myself in a new direction. I am now in charge of teaching students how to use the dental microscope to refine preparations prior to placement of restorations and prior to making impressions for full coverage restorations. So this is a new uh, focus. This is the only uh, curriculum course in the whole world, I believe, that's doing this. We're actually teaching D1 students all the way to D4 students now. And we've been doing this for the past seven years. We put it on a good trial basis and we see how successful it was, how the students responded. And I believe that going forward, this could be the next wave. I think we have to aspire to do great dentistry uh, for our patients and requires precision dentistry as we'll be talking about even in the class too. So again, I think this is something that hopefully other schools will jump on board uh, and I can help them in any way to do that. Yeah, thank you so much. Very impressive. Thank you so much for the introduction. Alan, let's um, talk about class two restorations. And my first question is, could you explain what is the definition of class two restorations? Okay, so when we look in the uh, in the scale of restorations, we have certainly class one to all the way to class five. You know, class two, I think, is probably the most difficult restoration of all because it deals with going interproximally and requires a matrix band to fulfill building out a wall of the tooth as well as a marginal ridge. So the sophistication and the preparation. Uh, how you place the bonding agent, everything, every step of the way becomes a little bit more difficult because you're approaching the gingival margin, subgingival sometimes, which requires uh, even more isolation because isolation, as we know, is the most important criteria to get a good outcome, particularly with adhesive dentistry. So I believe that uh, when you have to, patient comes in, uh, we take radiographic analysis, we'll we ascertain that there's caries at the interproximal. Usually it shows up as a little line going through the enamel and approaching the dentin. And there are different classifications of caries or dental disease that's developing interproximally. But typically we try to approach it the most conservative way. Uh, a traditional class two with a composite allows us to be conservative in our approach. Uh, and the goal is to hold as much to structure as possible, uh, not take away too much enamel, remove the disease, 
to the extent where you can just preserve as much tooth structure because we know uh, the bacteria have created the disease and that mm -hmm. in fact is part of what we want to eliminate and then be able to seal that margin so bacteria does not re-enter the place of origin. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Alan. How much time do you usually schedule for a class two restoration? Yeah, I think that for the most part, on average, I, I determine the amount of time that I spend uh, placing a restoration on the difficulty of the patient. Uh, certain patients require more attention, but on average, I would say for a typical class two, if I'm just doing one class two in an upper arch, 30 minutes, if I'm doing a lower arch, I give a little bit more time for anesthesia, so maybe 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And what is the biggest challenge you face when placing class two restorations? Well, you know, I have been fortunate enough to be able to go all over the world and teach. Uh, this has been my wheelhouse for 20 years. This is my uh, holy grail, so to speak. I, I've been trying to figure out how we can get better outcomes with class twos, because if you really dive into the research, and I am a research junkie, I, I just love reading the research and trying to figure out how we can take that research and put it in our hands in the operatory. And what I found is even in uh, clinical-based or practice-based studies, posterior composites are not holding up very well long-term. And that is a very disconcerting because we compare it to amalgam or traditional restorations that have been placed in the past, they are lasting longer than composites. So the question then becomes why? Why is it these class twos not holding up very well? And we see that it's a very technique sensitive procedure. If we can't do it proficiently, do it well, and then also do it efficiently, we are increasing the likelihood of failure. And we'll see that it's actually a tripod of failure. We see that the patient will certainly play a role in the outcome. And I think one of the important things that I love to discuss and inspire and, and, and challenge my audience to is to help their patients understand that their role in the outcome is significantly important. Uh, every time a patient eats hard foods, it's putting stress on a restoration and the tooth. So I try to let them know they need to go to softer types of diets. Hard nuts, hard candy, hard pretzels, chewing ice, chewing gum exacerbates the restoration, the interface, and will lead to expedited failure. But also what we do, and I, I don't tell anybody they're doing anything wrong. What I like to tell my audience is that they can do it better. And there's two, I tell, as I tell my students, you can do it or do it well and it doesn't take any longer to do it well. So I sort of outline the steps, which we'll, you and I will discuss today, on how we can really achieve better outcomes. And, and that will last as long as composites, but the patient has to do their part, we have to do our part, and then we have to choose the correct materials. There are many materials that have been hyped up for us to believe that they are going to be the savior of our restoration, and they don't live up to the hype. So what we have to find out and challenge ourselves is to really scrutinize the evidence, find, make sure that we're using the right material in the right location on the tooth. You doing the right type of preparation, as we'll see, is going to be very important. But really, the material choice, as we'll see, becomes critical. And then how you place that material. Because if you place it incorrectly, again, it's going to be failure. So we'll see there's many steps to failure for a class two. So we have to make sure each step is done proficiently and efficiently because we don't want to spend too much time. And that's been my philosophy of care. Make sure to take your time, but also make sure it don't take too much time because that's where we have problems. If we start doing some of these techniques that take 29 steps, that's just too long and we're increasing mm -hmm. the likelihood of failure. Yeah, so 
you mentioned some tips um, you would recommend when it comes to placing class two restorations. Do you have some more from us? Oh, yes, I sir, <laughs> that I do. I think that, uh, you know, I, I sort of break it down into many different criteria and it starts with the prep. And in my journey around the world and going and teaching other dental schools, I find that we're still doing the preparation in the same manner that we did amalgam restorations. So actually, we're not using the right tools. Uh, we're using carbides to prep teeth when we should be using diamonds and using different grits at different intervals in order to create the best seal. And for most part, the enamel is the hermetic seal. It's the envelope of the restoration, except when the caries or the decay is going below what we call the dental enamel junction or above the cementum enamel junction. That's when we have a weaker substrate to bond to. Enamel is a great substrate to bond to as long as you treat it correctly. And the goal is to create a smooth enamel junction, also following somewhat the orientation of the enamel rods at each particular location on the tooth. So if you don't treat the enamel well, and there's many cracks in the enamel, what will happen from preparation, what will happen is when you put the bonding agent on, the enamel will crack more because when you cure it, it will solidify and crack the enamel. Then when you put the composite on top of that and cure it, pure, uh, photopolymerize it, it will crack more. And then when the patient bites down on that first nice hard nut, it will crack even more. And this is the mode of failure. And it's been shown that those restorations by Hayashi and Wilson in the landmark paper, those restorations that, that have this discoloration on the cable surface margins, interproximal margins, as well as deterioration at three years will more likely have failed than five years. And five years is just not a good time frame for, for any restoration to last, because we have to keep redoing it over and over every five years. What's going to be left after 20 or 25 years? Not much. And therefore, it's the downward spiral of failure. So we have to do it well right at the start. If we're replacing a restoration again, that also is going to require us to do it carefully, preserve tooth structure, and make sure the enamel and the dentin are treated properly throughout the procedure. But also the matrix band placement has to be done precisely. And we've been teaching our students the Paladin system for, you know, for the longest time because it's a complete system. It has the wedge guards which protect the adjacent teeth. Very important. You don't want to damage the adjacent tooth when you're prepping a tooth, particularly a class two, because it's going to come right there, right at the spot where the adjacent tooth is. So if you damage that adjacent tooth, that tooth will be more likely to fail because it gets a roughened surface and bacteria just love roughened surfaces. They accumulate in the biofilm and then start the caries process from that mistake that we made by damaging it. So the wedge guard, the ring, the ring, again, a lot of misconception about what's creating the contact. Uh, the ring is what opens the contact. It creates the separation, not the wedge in this procedure. So a wooden wedge, if you're doing a typical, probably an anterior restoration with a mylar, you need a wooden wedge to separate to create the ultimate contact. But with this procedure, the ring is what creates the, the, the contact. So I always tell my, my audience, make sure that you, if your ring is looking, feeling very weak and you can open it up real wide, very easily, that means the ring is not going to create enough tension to cause a separation and you will not get an optimal contact. Because when you do place the matrix band, the other misconception is that you need to burnish the band against the adjacent tooth. Well, these bands are very delicate and they crimp, dent, scratch. And if you do that while you're burnishing, your contact is going to look 
like that on the inverse. And when you, this creates, again, another biofilm magnet and plaque trap and food trap. And I truly believe burnishing the band is one of the major contributory reasons to class two failures. We are creating a contact that's not optimal, that's attracting bacteria, and they just accumulate and they go after the vulnerable spot. That vulnerable spot is the interface between the composite and the tooth structure. So again, what I teach my, my, my audience and my students, place the matrix band on well, put the wedge in and then seat the ring carefully over on top of the wedge and make sure that it's seated correctly. Then you have to make sure you have gingival seal. Then you have to make sure that you have the side seal. And the best way to seal the sides of the interproximal areas is burnishing on the outside in or using just some Teflon tape to push the band in to seal those margins. If you have excess coming out the sides, then you need to go after that material and remove it. So again, right down the start, we see the prep, the matrix band, and then the adhesive aspect. Again, we're teaching selective enamel etch using Prima Bond Elect. And in, in America, we're using Elect. I know in Europe, they're using Active. Little, little of the same, but the, the bottom line is they're both multi-modes, universal adhesives, which means that you can use them as a total etch procedure, a self-etch procedure, or more optimally, as a selective enamel etch, where you optimize the benefit of a self-etch and a total etch. We know from the evidence that the enamel, unless it is etched, would not be a very durable bond. The etching the enamel has to happen. But we also know that we, if we place an etch, particularly an etch that's not thick and instead runny, it will go down and hit the, the dentin. And then when you dry it and rinse and dry it, the bond will be weaker because of the effect on the dentin, particularly if you're going to use a self-etch only product. So again, these light cured self-etch products, traditional ones, if you use a selective enamel etch, you're running in risk of, of hurting the bond strength to the enamel, uh, to the dentin, particularly at the DEJ and where the dentin starts right after the um, uncut enamel on the cable margin. So what the benefit of using elect is that since it's a multi-mode, if you happen to touch the etch on the dentin, you just have to rinse it and dry it carefully so that you don't desiccate the dentin, leave it slightly moist, and then you'll get an optimal bond to the dentin and the enamel. So this is the primary reason why we're teaching this. This is the best of both worlds. The prime bond elect, the prime bond active are two materials that really work well in this capacity. The research shows that, that they actually, in the self-edge mode, have a very durable bond uh, long-term, much better than the other multi-modes that are out on the market. So we are going forward, teaching them the right procedure. I think the goal of placing adhesive procedure is to do it carefully. And if you're sloppy, it's not going to work out at all. So what we do is we teach proper mechanism, scrubbing technique to infiltrate the smear layer uh, that's there after preparation. So you get a good hybrid layer. And then after placement of the, of the elect, you wanna make sure you air dry this carefully because the solvent in the, in the bonding agent will remove the excess water, but then you must remove that solvent. If the solvent is left there by improper air drying, it will, the bonding agent will not fully polymerize and the composite that's gonna go on that air inhibitor layer will not fully polymerize well. So you will have a weakened bond, more cytotoxicity. So again, air drying that bonding agent is very, very critical uh, once it's placed and do it. I usually recommend doing it eight to 10 seconds 
moderate air circular motion to eliminate all the solvent. And I usually have actually the suction right there because I don't want the bonding agent any excess splattering on the adjacent teeth. Even with a rubber dam on, you're still gonna have other teeth exposed because that will create an etching effect. So again, right down the line where we see that's how important. And we'll get to the, the other aspect of that, I surmise, in the next couple of questions uh, in terms of material placement and how we place it and then we, how we finish it. That's the last part of the, of the procedure. So you see it's very technique sensitive. And unfortunately, most dentists are not doing it proficiently because they just need to make a few tweaks. And that's what I, my goal is always, to inspire them to do it better, make these tweaks, and get it done well. Wow, that's a lot of tips, and I'm sure they will be very helpful for a lot of dentists. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, Ellen. Yeah, my next question, you, you also teach all over the world, and um, I would love to know what question do you get asked um, the most in your lectures around posterior composites? Well, that's a perfect lead-in, Anna, to the, to the next part of the procedure, and that's material selection. And we'll see that then after you've bonded well and, and you're ready to place the material, uh, there's so many opinions about what material should go on the box, in the box, on the pulpal floor, in that base of that cavity preparation. There are many people out there aspire to place resomava glass onomers, glass onomers, thinking that that fluoride release is going to inhibit secondary caries or recurrent decay. And unfortunately, it doesn't. The evidence shows that it's never been proven that fluoride in dental materials actually stop secondary caries. Anybody can go look it up. So that's the fact. So the other part of it is we know from clinical trials that actually placing these types of materials underneath the composite weaken the composite. There are more fractures of the composite when you place glass anomers or resin-modified glass anomers underneath the composite. And believe it or not, the same hold true's true if you're doing a ceramic restoration. If you put a glass anomer underneath ceramic, more likely it's going to crack or fail. So these have not been very reliable materials. Uh, what has been shown in the evidence is one material has stood out more than any other, and this is not recent. This is since six, since 2009. That's how long this has been going on. This material is called Surafil SDR Flow Plus. This material is a flowable material. Now, when it first got released in 2009, I went to the uh, International Association of Dental Research meeting to see the um, the lecture, the presentation about it by the researcher from Densplicerona. And I went up to him, I said, can you do anything other than a flowable? Because the flowables have been shown that they, although they have a very good modulus of elasticity towards dentin, they actually shrink a significant amount. Well, he told me this one has a modulator, modulator that relaxes the uh, methacrylate while it's going through polymerization so that you get much better adaptation. And he said, you will see in the evidence, we're doing clinical trials, and this is back in 2009, that it will come to fruition. So this was a very new material. I was a little, you know, I guess, cautiously optimistic about it. But then the study started coming out, independent study showing that this material actually has the least amount of polymerization shrinkage and polymerization shrinkage stress to the interface. So it adapts really well. The clincher for me is when I went to another, um, 
presentation by a very famous Japanese researcher who actually does most of the research for another company. And he's been doing this uh, technique called swept source optical coherence tomography. And this is actually like almost equivalent to doing a uh, ultrasound. Gives you the same type of real time video look, but you're using very low emitting light waves to capture how a composite behaves while it's being photopolymerized. And he shows uh, a, a video of most of, he, they tested every flowable on the, comp on the market and every flowable had a gap once it was polymerized of over 100 microns. And bacteria, believe it or not, get into the interface at 30 microns. So 100 is a uh, basically a big, big space for composites to fail. Uh, so we have to do better. We have to achieve much better margins. And if we're using a composite that shrinks at the margin, creating a bigger gap, that's not good news. Well, then he shows SDR Flow Plus. And he, you know, he said, stands up there and he's scratching and says, I can't believe we tested this material a hundred times. Every time, never showed a gap at the interface. He said it was like watching paint dry or grass grow. It was unbelievable. And they couldn't believe it. He said, and to this day, this is now in 2011, that was the game changer for me. He said, this material is a game changer. And right at this moment, this material, in my estimation, and still is today, nothing has ever duplicated this material. This is the material that you are to use as a dentin replacement from 0.5 millimeters up to four millimeters on every restoration. If there's dentin, this should go down first. Because not only that, you're actually creating a very strong bond to the interface. And then the, if you use an incremental technique, the incremental technique to the SDR with, and my, what I use is TPH Spectra SD, is very strong and it creates a beautiful restoration. But the key is right at that margin. How is the composite behaving at that margin? And this material behaves unlike any other. Every other material shrinks away from the market, deteriorates in citric acid, uh, will absorb too much water, this material seems to be withstanding the test of time. And you look at clinical trials, and there have been many that show that this material is working optimally better than any other material on the market. Now, certainly there's been an influx of these bioactive, it's a very sexy word, bioactive. Uh, but truly, the bioactive materials that are out there today, and you could consider glass ionomer a bioactive material. It creates some type of interface um, using certain minerals, fluoride and calcium. But the bottom line is that there's just not enough of these ions, calcium, phosphorus, and uh, fluoride in the saliva to create a new interface between the material and the tooth structure. They work very well in the test tube, very well in vitro, but they've never transcended into the clinical environment. They just don't do what they say they do. And that's misleading and unfortunate. I truly wish there was a material that would seal that margin and create a new hydroxyapatite formation, but it doesn't exist. So unfortunately, we're faced with the fact that we have most materials at that margin are not working adequately. The one that can and does reliably uh, do it time after time is the SDR plus. So after that, if you put an increment of SDR in that box, cure it well, and then put TPH, and, and again, how I use TPH Spectra ST is, I do it in a specialty technique that I'm um, actually researching and publishing uh, very shortly. 
it's a it's a technique that allows the composite to flow as it's being polymerized because most times you put a bulk film material inside the tooth it stresses out it's the, the bonding agent trying to hold it together but it shrinks away anywhere from two to six percent depending on the material and you get gaps again so the key is if you can create a class six type of restoration like a composite on top of a top tooth in a class two then the composite will adapt best to the sdr to the axial wall the dentin and then very importantly to the enamel and that's the goal. And I have developed a technique, and, and you'll see the publication soon, hopefully, where we uh, show that this material, this materials, using the SDR TPH in the manner which I described, the technique that I have come up with, is actually right now the most efficient and proficient way to place a composite restoration, whether it's a class one, two, three, four, or five. You can use the same technique, but most importantly, that SDR. And if anybody asks me, What's the most sought question I get? It's about what do you put in the base of a tooth? And that is SDR. It is by and by far and above the best material on the market. It is a game changer and it's changed the way I do restorations. And I am so thankful that Densply Serona came up with this amazing product. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much. So uh, my last question was, um, when you don't feel comfortable using an adhesive and resin-based composite, what is your alternative for those situations? Well, it's a great question. And there's been, again, many diverse opinions about this. But all you have to do is, if you, if you have the time, you go and look in the research. You go look at the evidence. And I outline all the evidence about materials. We're looking for primarily a material that would be self-adhesive. If we didn't have to put uh, a bonding agent down and we had a reliable self-adhesive material, uh, that we can do, again, a little bit more expeditiously, more efficiently than using one perhaps with a bonding agent. That would be the ultimate, where we don't have to do anything special to the surface uh, to place the restoration. Well, I looked at all the restorations that we have out there as, again, posterior restorations uh, to do as a self-adhesive. The first one, of course, glass anomer. But if you look at the evidence, the glass anomers, and they've come out with sort of uh, high viscosity glass anomers, uh, hoping that they would be stronger in, in the posterior region. They just have not worked. When we look at some of the other materials uh, that the bioactive materials that are out there, they too have not worked well in durability as well as bonding to the tooth surface. They just don't work. Now, two years ago, a material was introduced uh, in the journal Adhesive Dentistry. Uh, it's called Shorefield One. This too is a self adhesive material. The distinguishing factor about this material, and to me probably the most important, is that it is a dual cured composite, which means you place it into the cavity preparation, it will start setting. And we know from the evidence that dual cured restorations behave much differently than light cured. They actually adapt much better because their velocity of polymerization is two times as less then if you like your, once you like your, you're starting that carbon double bond change to a single bond and there's a lot of reactivity. Well, the self, the dual cure is sort of self curing on its own before you like your. So it's adapting really well to the margins. And back in 2009, I actually did research looking at dual cured composites. And what we found is if you take a dual cured and actually cured it immediately, it behaves like a like cured. You actually had the most shrinkage, volumetric shrinkage and the most leakage. But if you let it set 
And we found 30 to 60 seconds, 30 seconds is more than adequate. Just let it set for 30 seconds. It actually adapts much better to the interface than if you cure it immediately or if you let it auto cure. So the reason why auto curing is not, or just letting it auto cure on its own is that you must like cure a dual cure to improve the physical properties. So we put our product, our samples through uh, thermal cycling, aging, and we found that the ones that are self-cured or auto-cured deteriorated at the margin. When you like cured it, at, after 30 seconds, it actually behaved the best. And there have been many companies now taking that evidence and applying it to their directions for use for dual-cured uh, core build-up materials, dual-cured cements. So I always advocate and tell my audience, don't cure it immediately. You know, make sure it's well adapted. You should be doing incremental filling of it anyway. But in this particular situation with the Shofil uh, 1, you're putting the material all the way into the preparation and filling it up at once. It is a true bulk fill. And it's already auto-curing on the base. Now, as with any of the other, other important fact with the dual cure is that you must allow it to fully dark cure for five minutes before you do anything to the tooth, whether you check the bite, you do any adjustment on the bite, or if you're gonna take a core material like Fluorocore 2 Plus, you should wait five minutes before you start prepping it. Well, the same thing applies to Shorefill 1. It is a capsulated uh, uh, material, so you have to put it through titration. And then from titration to finish, it's about five or six minutes before you would remove the matrix band. If you have a matrix band, if you're doing a class one, you can just place it, cure it, and you can start finishing it immediately, but the dark cure will still continue because that's happening no matter what. You've like cured the first two millimeters, but the bottom base of it, perhaps it's another two millimeters, is still undergoing dark cure, but it's been well protected because you already like cured it. In a class two with a band, it's optimal just to wait a little bit longer. You can actually start finishing the top, you can cure the top of it, start finishing it, and just after a couple more minutes, remove the band, and you will see that when you remove that band, it is smooth as glass. That's one of the amazing things about it. Now, in the oral environment, the material, all composites look a little bit dry, but then they regain some moisture and they look much more natural. What I found after two years using the Shofil one, no fractures, and that's what these evidence in the journal that he said dentistry showed, 500,000 500, um, thermal cycle chewing cycles by Dr. Frankenberg uh, did this study, showed that it didn't fracture where the other materials did. I'm finding no fracture, no post-operative sensitivity, the color and stability, color stability of the material has been great. Marginal quality has been great. I don't even etch the enamel. I just do treat it the same way I would do it if I was doing a traditional class two with SDR and TPH. So I smooth the enamel to get the optimal adhesion and, and quality to, uh, to the enamel as well as to the dentin. So you must use the right diamonds, same, same pathway, but you're just treating the tooth surface much more simply. You're not treating it at all, just cleaning it disinfecting it and just making sure it's clean and free of debris and blood and saliva before you place the restoration. So to me, the evidence is there, the in vitro evidence. Uh, we're still waiting on some more uh, clinical trials, but so far in my hands uh, and many other people, they've done some, they released some preliminary data showing that it's working very well clinically. So when you can't put a traditional composite in class two because of perhaps poor isolation, uh, a patient that's not being cooperative, a uh, patient that has, uh, you know, our elderly population does not have the, the strength to stand in that chair for a long time. So we have to move faster. 
And this enables us to move faster in those situations where we can't place a body agent and do major incremental filling. So in aesthetic region, in a region, it's working out in the posterior very well. Uh, as a core buildup, it can work very well. So I think this material has prodigious potential. I think it's showing that it does work much better than the glass isomers. So to me, not only is it a replacement in a compromised situation, it is a replacement for any, any procedure where you would traditionally place a glass isomer restoration. It is far and above better than any of those market on the market today, as well as any of those bioactive materials. So Surefill 1, I believe, is the next game changer for dense plasterona. SDR is there, SDR will always be there, but now Surefill 1 is, is showing true promise in the clinical environment. That's really great. Thank you so much, Ellen, for sharing your knowledge um, with us, and thank you for uh, joining the students. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope uh, everybody learned a little bit today. Uh, certainly, I hope I have the opportunity to meet anybody who's listening to this podcast uh, in person at one of my presentations coming soon to a location near you, hopefully. Very pleased to be joined in our virtual podcast studio by a dentist from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is also a clinical professor in the Department of Endodontics and the Department of Preventive Restorative Sciences and Director of Restorative Microscopy. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Alan Atlas. It's good to have you here. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. 